Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Becklin. I'm a human rights practitioner, currently a visiting scholar and lecturer at Yale Law School, and the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rana Sioen Borden about her new book, China and the International Human Rights Regime, published just a few months ago by Cambridge University Press. The book is a deep dive into the conduct of China's diplomacy on human rights issues at the United Nations. It examines in detail China's role and impact on the complex negotiations between UN members over the International Covenant Against Torture and its optional protocol, the establishment of the UN Human Rights Council, and the monitoring powers of the International Labour Organization. The book also retraces China's evolving posture towards the international human rights regime and identifies the drivers of China's conduct in this arena. The book provides some very valuable insights about questions that have since become even more prominent in light of the situation in Hong Kong, the crisis in Sitiang, China's position vis-à-vis the invasion of Ukraine, and other topics. Dr. Rana Sewing Borden is a senior fellow with the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas, Austin. She served in the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, and also served at the U.S. Consulate in Shanghai. She holds a DPhil from the Department of Politics and International Relations at Oxford University, She obtained an MA at Stanford University in East Asian Studies and a BS at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Rana, I'm delighted to welcome you on the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Rana, I believe we first met when I was at Human Rights Watch in charge of China and you were at DRL. Tell us how you got there, where you grew up, and what made you choose a career in government. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I'm Chinese-American, and I grew up in Hawaii. Uh, My family has actually been there for four generations, so they immigrated there in the 1890s. And as, uh, as much of a paradise Hawaii was, it was also somewhat isolating to grow up on an island, and I really hungered to see and study the world. That's how I became interested in foreign relations. And as you mentioned, I went to Georgetown and then Stanford. And I was fortunate to land a job at the State Department through the Presidential Management Fellowship Program. That is one of the ways the US government recruits graduate students. And at the State Department, I was able to work on a number of issues with China, but human rights was the one that I gravitated toward most. Um, And so I made that the focus of my career. And then at some point uh, you went on to do your PhD at Oxford and, and that is the basis of the book, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Even though the State Department was a great opportunity to serve in government and try to advance important issues, uh, issues of importance to global stability, on a, and on a personal level, I certainly felt challenged by that work. I also felt that the, the frenetic pace of work in Washington on foreign policy didn't give me time to think strategically about China's overall trajectory. Uh, We were often so busy responding to human rights violations or seeking to secure the release of some prisoners of conscience that I really felt that there was a need to do more reflection on questions like what are the most useful levers with China, Um, what kinds of international monitoring on human rights would hold the most promise, 
for generating change on the ground in China. And so that's why I decided to pursue my DPhil at Oxford. And when I actually decided to focus my dissertation on China and human rights, it wasn't a hot topic in the China field. In fact, I, I feel like I was often marginalized in the China field. And, um, but I was very fortunate that I was working with Professor Rosemary Foote, who herself had written a previous book on China and human rights and was very supportive of my work and also helped me narrow down my topic to look at what role China has played in the international human rights regime. Right. I, I think that sounds very familiar to me, the uh, necessity to step out of the day-to-day -day work to uh, think a little bit more strategically about um, what what we're doing. Um, so thank you for that, that introduction. Um, let's jump into the book and let's start at the top. Um, what is the international human rights regime and where does it fit in the larger world of international politics? Okay, that's a great question. So in terms of the scholars who work on this area, most of us uh, borrow from scholar Stephen Krasner's definition of what an international regime is, and that would be principles, norms, rules, and decision-making procedures that govern a particular international issue area, like trade, arms control, or human rights. So the human rights regime can be seen as encompassing the UN Human Rights Council, all of the monitoring procedures created through human rights treaties, like the Convention Against Torture, the Office of the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, and the bodies within the International Labor Organization that are focused on worker rights. Many of these are covered in my book, um, and, and the human rights regime is much broader than that. It, it essentially includes any international body that governs the human rights behavior of countries. Right. And this is a regime that um, many people find lacking um, in terms of results on the ground. But you show in the book that uh, nonetheless, this is something that China uh, follows very attentively and has been engaged with uh, very seriously. Uh, but this is one part of a larger engagement with human rights issue that China has been conducted. Can you tell us a little bit more about China's human rights diplomacy in, in general? Sure. Well, <clears throat> after the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, where China did suffer sanctions and a hit to its image, as well as the loss of business, China has since then really felt like it needed to be involved in international human rights discussions, in the international human rights regime, part largely to protect its interests, um, to give the semblance of being cooperative, um, to try to shape the trajectory of the regime. And so even though I think on many levels we should encourage China to be involved in international regimes, we also should look at what exactly is China doing in the regime and how, how, how much cooperation do we really see? Is China procedurally compliant or are there substantive changes? And as for those who have read my book, you can see that overall, um, even as China has increased its participation in the international human rights regime, there are a number of shortcomings with regard to how much China has changed uh, the substance of its practices and also its beliefs. Right. And uh, I think it doesn't come as a surprise that China is fundamentally hostile to uh, many aspects of the, of the human rights regime. But we have to recognize um, uh, for those of us who have worked on China for a long time, that China did buy in the system. It ratified a large number of international 
conventions. It's been a, a procedurally quite engaged. Um, in 2004, I think it introduced a, a mention in its own constitution that the states was uh, respecting and protecting human rights. Um, it had uh, a couple of human rights action plan at the national level, which is something uh, somewhat mandated by um, uh, international uh, standards. Um, and uh, of course, it has also developed its own uh, uh, discourse on human rights. And I think for anyone who um, has spent a lot of time in China, it's clear that the, the, just the term human rights become largely more accepted in China and actually used by ordinary people. It was taught at university, uh, it was taught in schools, um, and uh, it, it gained, uh, I think, a, a level of acceptance in the population that was encouraged by uh, the state. Is that, is that correct? Yes, I think um, that's correct. And, you know, in, in 2004, when China amended its constitution to include that human rights clause, I think many of us welcomed that and were frankly pleasantly surprised. But I think in, in the intervening time period, it's very discouraging to see that um, there's the crisis in Xinjiang with arbitrary detention, forced labor, and um, that Xi Jinping overall has increased repression. Ordinary Chinese citizens have much less uh, privacy. They uh, face a, n- a number of uh, ways that the state intrudes on their personal lives. And the Wake Trend movement, the movement of human rights lawyers and activists, has largely been decapitated. And we see the uh, problems in Hong Kong with protesters being um, violently put down. So even though there have been a number of formal steps, I think there's really some very troubling practices in terms of the tangible, um, there's not tangible human rights improvement. In fact, I I think we've seen the opposite. You you are also right that human rights is a term that is talked about, is accepted, but and, and in the 1980s, it was a taboo term, completely off, you know, off limits. But I think what has happened is that the Chinese government has sort of blunted uh, the definition of human rights. And so it's not threatening to the Chinese government to have Chinese citizens talk about human rights. Right. But China finds it threatening when other countries and the international community look into China's uh, own uh, human rights record. And um, that is something that has guided China's uh, conduct of of its diplomacy in respect to human rights. In the book, you really analyze in in a lot of details um, three um, uh, cases, three main um, uh, case studies. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about each each of them? Sure. You know, I am a professor, so I like to talk. Um, it. So first, I look at the drafting of two international conventions on torture, and as well as labor. So the International Labor Organization has a body that monitors state compliance with ratified conventions. And I also look at the UN Human Rights Council, which replaced the UN Commission on Human Rights in 2006. For a number of your listeners and the book's readers, China's behavior and positions during the creation of the Human Rights Council will be one of the most interesting because this is the body where states are held accountable um, with regard to how they treat their own citizens. And it's supposed to serve as the premier UN human rights body. Um, Also, UN reform, where an existing body is replaced with a new one, does not happen very often. So, for example, the UN Commission on Human Rights had been the main body for about six decades. So this process is very consequential Um, And the chapter also gives a real bird's eye view of the Chinese government's view 
of the international human rights regime because during the first year of the Human Rights Council, so 2006 to 2007, the member states in the council reviewed much of the international human rights regime, everything from the body of human rights experts that form the special procedure system, the creation of the of what is called a universal periodic review process, which um, monitors the records of all member states. Um, and it also there's also a complaint mechanism that individuals can use to lodge concerns about human rights practices in their own countries. And so, you, as you can see, there a lot of issues um, were discussed and reviewed, and also a lot of the the future of the human rights regime was really at play here. And so, China was very involved in this process and expended a lot of effort to hold back or hold back the strengthening of the regime, or in some cases, weaken the human rights regime. And um, you touched on China and um, when other states are express concern or condemnation of China's human rights record. And this was one of the biggest issues for China, where they, ever since Tiananmen, they have not, uh, they have, whenever they have faced the introduction of what is called a country-specific resolution, so a resolution in the UN that is just on China's record, Chinese diplomats would respond very um, aggressively. And even though the resolution never passed, it was always very embarrassing to China. And so China used this opportunity to try to weaken um, the council's ability to use resolutions. First, it suggested that one third of the member states, so that would require 15 states in the council to sponsor a resolution. So that that is a relatively high bar even to get a resolution introduced for voting. And then China insisted that it should be a two thirds vote um, to be required for the resolution to pass. So that would mean 31 countries would have to um, pass the resolution rather than just relying on a majority vote. That's a very high bar for a country resolution. So it would have effectively made it impossible for the council to use country-specific resolutions. And it was, here's where diplomacy can be so colorful. China pushed this until the very last minute. So there there were discussions that spanned a whole year. Um, but at the at the end, China still had not secured this position, this restrictive rule on the use of country resolutions. So they held up agreement on this package, which is called the in- institution building package. Um, they held up agreement till past midnight, and it it meant that the celebratory reception that the mission of Mexico had planned that included a mariachi band had to be uh, postponed. And the discussions were the first Human Rights Council president was um, Ambassador de Alba of Mexico, and he had to continue negotiating with his Chinese counterparts until past midnight, where they were calling Beijing to see if they could relent and um, just let the IB package be passed. And I remember that in the in the book, you mentioned the fact that one of the factor that led the uh, Chinese delegation to relent was when uh, the Alba showed them press uh, uh, clippings that uh, were blaming China for the, the failure of the negotiation. Yes, that's right. Um, I think that was very clever of Ambassador de Alba. Um, and it, they're, they're, in the past, China has been very sensitive about its international image. 
Um, and this has acted as a restraint on China's behavior, in, definitely in the Human Rights Council, but also in other issue areas. We have seen the same thing. Even um, China's willingness to accede to some arms control agreements, but I would I will caution um, a, a note of caution that I I personally am concerned about, which is that over time China's sensitivity to its image and the ability to use image concerns as a restraint on China to push China toward more cooperative postures has significantly weakened um, definitely over the last 15 years and even more so under Xi Jinping. I think the lessening of this image um, concern is manifesting in a number of troubling ways. So UN staff and expert advisors, um, especially those who serve on treaty bodies, um, which are ones that govern human rights like uh treaties on torture and children's rights and the rights of uh, people with disabilities, many of them report intimidation from Chinese officials in in an effort to influence them. And China's behavior often goes beyond normal diplomacy and verges on bullying or threatening behavior. And we've also seen the same thing with China and some of the special procedures when China has allowed some of those experts to visit. um, China will interfere with the visit and will um, intimidate Chinese civil society activists so that they don't feel comfortable accepting meetings. And the uh, UN staff and experts have been uh, followed by um, plainclothes security. So there's a number of ways that China's behavior um, without this restraint is is very troubling. And all this uh, really is about China's protecting, China protecting its own human rights record. But you say in the book that China had a a bit of a systemic impact on um, the ability of the new human rights Council to be effective, in particular the more ambitious um, uh, states that were uh, supporting the reform at the time wanted to have a high bar in terms of um, membership to the the Human Rights Council, and China opposed this uh, very much, and in the end um, that was defeated. Um, was China single-handedly uh, responsible for that, or was it a critical factor? Certainly, there were many other states who were opposed to having an effective Human Rights Council. Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, that's where I'm so thankful for my training under Professor Foote at Oxford, where she really pushed me to be rigorous in my use of sources and do careful empirical work. So when I started looking at that particular question, a lot of other people assumed that China was responsible for this, largely responsible for the lack of criteria. But as I delved into this question, looking at documents, um, poring over NGO reporting, UN um, reporting, and also conducting a number of interviews, both with uh, diplomats and UN officials and human rights activists from a range of different regions. It came out that China alone was not responsible for the lack of membership criteria or um, the requirement that some had introduced that states needed to be voted by a two-thirds majority of the General Assembly into the Human Rights Council. So that's what we mean by a high bar, either requiring membership standards in terms of human rights commitments or behavior, and then or a two-thirds vote. And it was actually a number of a handful of countries, not just China, um, and I would say China alone was played a much lower key role on this issue. And I think Pakistan and Russia 
were the ones that were more active in securing um, the lack of a high bar for the council. And another area where China may have had a systemic in, impact um, was at the International Labour um, Organization, the ILO, over the negotiations of a particular committee that is in charge of monitoring the implementation of ILO uh, convention. Can you talk a little bit about what the ILO does and why China uh, felt that it needed to engage and um, shield itself from a more robust um, investigation monitoring system? Yes, um, so the ILO is um, an enormous uh, organization and there are hundreds of worker labor rights uh, treaties there and there is a committee that deals with ratified uh, treaties, and it, they, it meets during the annual session of the uh, ILC, the International Labor Conference, that is usually held in early summer in Geneva. And what I found so interesting about this case study is that I had assumed that choosing labor rights, which is an issue that uh, China as a communist country, ha, you know, says it's traditionally has said it's, you know, uh, for the workers. But what I found was that even though China didn't actually openly push for changes to how the committee did its monitoring, that there were a number of ways that China used the rules to its favor. So it would use the sessions of the committee where some other states came under uh, pressure during, during their reviews. So for example, um, Burma for forced labor, there were very credible and worrisome reports during um, about a decade period about over Burma. And China spoke almost every year in defense of Burma. China did this with a number of other countries and what is so interesting is the um, my analysis, I compared the countries that China spoke for um, even uh, and even looked at what those countries said and did to defend China in the UN Commission on Human Rights and the UN Human Rights Council. And you really see that... Um, they're, they're almost look like a tit for tat sort of exchange where I'll protect you, I'll speak in defense of you, please block to vote a resolution on my record in the UN. Um, and so even though China never really pushed to alter the uh, ILO's monitoring mechanisms, they still exploited it in their own ways. Right, and this, this is something that you identify as a, as a pattern of uh, China's diplomatic activity in, in, this, uh, in this realm. But I find that you know, one of the values of your book is that many people who've written about China's engagement with the human rights system tend to focus on either China's discourse, things like the fact that human rights are wanton attacks on domestic affairs of sovereign states, or that development and economic benefits are more important than political rights um, and, and other um, elements of, of, of the traditional diplomatic language of China, or they look at the votes uh, that China casts um, on human rights issue and um, either at the UN Security Council, uh, we are reminded of Syria or efforts to block any vote on Myanmar, um, recently on Ukraine. Um, but what you do is that you go beyond just the discourse and the vote and you look in detail at the conduct of the negotiations. And in the book, you come to an analytical framework um, that captures China's um, 
level of engagement with with the system, the maker, promoter, shaper, constrainer uh, model. Can you tell us about this model and why you chose it? Yes, thank you. And you rightly point out that, and, and as much as I benefited from other scholars and their existing work, I felt that there was a lot of focus, as, as you point out, on discourse, as well as the question of the degree of China's compliance. And I wanted to capture something a little more, which was um, how is China behaving toward the international human rights regime? And so capturing China's positions in the regime toward the existing rules. Um, I also wanted to capture the extent to which China was successful in changing uh, the international regime. I essentially wanted to look at what kind of impact is China having on the world um, if, if you consider an international regime to be part of the world. And I do because, as I mentioned these international regimes, uh, uh, even though they sound amorphous, they do govern important issue areas in the world. And so that's how I developed this um, spectrum of different roles that China could play. Right. And uh, so can you, you, you distinguish um, uh, different patterns of behavior by China. In, in certain areas, it was uh, more of a constrainer. Um, in another, uh, it was trying to be a shaper. C can you tell us about um, China's attitude in respect to the different human rights, um, parts of the human rights regime? Sure. So I developed, so there were five different roles that a state could play, maker, promoter, taker, constrainer, and breaker. Um, and, you know, what I liked is this wasn't a binary choice, but rather a spectrum of behavior. And then with regard to China specifically, I was surprised that, I think I was surprised by a couple of things. Um, one, I did not document China acting as a breaker. It often acted as a constrainer, so trying to hold back the strengthening of the human rights regime. But I didn't really see uh, outright efforts to break the regime. But I will also condition that with um, the statement that most of my research, uh, my research spans the 1980s through 2017. And so it's really, I would say, possibly only in the last five years that I, I do see some changes in China's behavior. So my book stops off in 2017, but other article length work that I've done that has looked at China in, for example, the Human Rights Council, uh, I see much more uh, destructive behavior that might come closer to either breaking a regime or acting as a maker that seeks to sort of re-envision and remake the human rights regime in a way that um, is in more alignment with China's views and China's interests. So in a sense, um, whereas China did not really have a set doctrine on human rights that guided its action. It was more concerned about specific things like being embarrassed or being criticized or um, or the domestic human rights movement in China getting some um, supports, at least moral support from what was happening at the UN. You think that now it is changing and that China has a coherent vision for a defanged human rights system that's trying to uh, push through the UN and, and get support for? So I don't, I don't know that China has a coherent vision for the human rights regime, but I will say that I think China would like to see an international human rights regime that is heavy on capacity building and cooperative projects, um, like projects to help train officials 
Um, I think China would like to see a lot of talk and dialogue and exchanging views and a human rights regime that is much more state-centric, so a much smaller role for human rights NGOs, for the kinds of internet, uh, the kinds of independent experts that I talked about um, who serve in various capacities in the international human rights regime. Um, so those three things I think China would like to see more of and much less spotlighting or of individual countries and much less um, use of censure, um, even when there are gross human rights violations. And so I, I think even, even though these are things that China... Um, elements that China would like to see. I don't know that they really have a vision except that they want to protect their interests. And it's not in their interest to have a regime that is very active in um, focusing on individual countries, that is very active in using country-specific resolutions or country-specific sessions to review um, emerging human rights violations or threats. Um, so for example, I think, especially with what is going on in the Uyghur region, China is very sensitive about making sure the human rights regime does not develop a greater capacity to spotlight those kinds of human rights abuses. Right. And I think we have a direct illustration of this with the fact that the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner has been sitting on a report on the situation in uh, the Uyghur region for many months and, and has not brought itself to, to um, uh, making it public yet. Uh, is that a good example of how effective um, China's pressure uh, behind closed door can be? Yes, I think that's um, a very good example of that. And, you know, I think some of what happens is also um, people engaging in a bit of self-censorship with regard to the actions they take on China, um, because they're just imagining uh, what China's wrath might be like. So in some cases, it might not even be that China does or says anything. I, I think China probably has made clear to the UN that they don't want to see this report published. But I also think that some people um, just shy away from doing certain things because they fear China's wrath. But I will also say that some of this self-censorship is because people have watched and studied what China has done. Um, and ever since the 1990s, China has very adeptly used its economic power to either um, reward countries um, through, for example, large uh, purchases of, for example, Airbus versus Boeing, um, or China will threaten a country. So uh, in the 1990s, one year, China was very upset about Denmark sponsoring a resolution in the UN. And so they made a, an announcement that Danish companies were going to be excluded from the market. And that there's a very colorful quote that um, it would be like China taking a stone and dropping it on the head of Denmark. And countries take note of this. And so in in essence, I, I think it's, it's uh, this might be a bit much to say, but China has sort of trained other actors to mute their human rights um, uh, concerns that the, a lot of countries will are very um, concerned about if they do something that the Chinese government views as uh, too muscular on human rights, that they will then uh, suffer some consequences in the bilateral relationship. Yeah, China definitely has been using the economic weapon to try to silence possible critics in 
I think a recent case of retaliation against a country is uh, against Lithuania, a member of the EU for uh, recognizing um, um, uh, Taiwan um, and um, elevating its diplomatic re relation with, uh, with, with Taiwan. Um, but what we see at the global level is that no matter what um, uh, trades, and investment with China uh, continue to to uh, rise, and it it is an extraordinarily uh, important economic player in in the world economy. Um, do you think that this is also something that is appealing to other actors who are generally opposed to a more robust human rights uh, system? Um, and there are many uh, around the world. But do you think that they China manages to get additional support, not only as a negative, um, as supporting a negative agenda, but also because there is something to the argument that um, economic development uh, is an avenue for improving um, uh, human rights, in particular um, economic and, and social rights. Um, yes, and you know, the this position that you mentioned about development is one that, um, you know, I think it, it is true that development, a certain level of economic development supports human rights protections. Um, and that this is certainly a position, though, that to a certain extent, I think China has exploited um, the, the like- there's a group of countries that I talk about in the book. It's called the like-minded group, and it's comprised mainly of developing non-Western countries. A number of them have marred human rights records, um, but they—they they, this is one of their key positions. Um, but the problem is that even if a certain level of development does support human rights, if we look at what has happened with China, as much as it's wonderful to see that China has um, raised the standard of living and the per capita GDP of its, of its nation, we also see that with greater state power, with greater state resources, instead of using that to the benefit of its citizens, what we see is that China has used it to build its uh, surveillance state, that we see a very oppressive digital surveillance state emerging in China. Um, one that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the social credit system, uh, where people's behavior, whether what they're reading, if they're going to sort of dissident websites will hurt their credit score, which then hurts their ability to do things like get loans or do um, paperwork and that, you know, like getting their IDs and things like that. But there, aside from the social credit system, there are a number of other ways that uh, China has used its growing wealth, um, not for the benefit of citizens, but to make the government stronger and more capable and effective at repressing. Right. And in recent years, since um, Xi Jinping came to power in, in 2012, um, I think we've seen a much more assertive uh, diplomacy, much less concern about what you describe in the book as a concern to be seen as agreeable and cooperative, um, especially when we look at the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, it seems to be anything but agreeable um, and cooperative. And I'm reminded that in 2008, so before when Xi Jinping was still vice president, he has not had not ascended to the the, uh, the number one position of um, uh, secretary general of the Communist Party. Um, he took a trip to Mexico, um, often characterized as the U.S. backyard, and made some uh, fairly. Um, important remarks about human rights, um, about human rights criticism coming from well-fed 
foreigners will have nothing to do. Um, it seems that Xi Jinping then put this in action upon coming to power. Is that right? Yes, and um, you know, you you point out that he traveled um, to another country to to make an overture with in this regard. And China has definitely courted the developing world um, or you know non Western countries. Um, if you look at China's statements in the UN when it was, um, especially when it was trying to defeat passage of resolutions on its own record, China would appeal to other countries, especially the developing world, um, framing this kind of selective attention as kind of Western countries unfairly targeting developing world countries. And so China definitely has actively sought to secure the the support of the developing world and um, very much works in alignment with a number of those countries. Right. And whereas before, um, you could always contrast the Chinese government's statement about human rights to prominent human rights defenders in China, or lawyers and uh, intellectuals and a nascent civil society, um, we can't really do that anymore, can we? I mean, all this has been leveled off and we don't hear from these um, pro-human rights views, uh, pro-rule of law views uh, from inside China itself. Yes, um, as I mentioned, you know, the the movement of human rights uh, lawyers um, and activists has, uh, you know, the Chinese government has cracked down on them so harshly, um, and really a, num- a number of them have been either detained, arrested, or so horribly um, mistreated or tortured that. I think it really has scared or muted um, a number of the traditional defenders who would be speaking up on human rights in China. I also think um, that there's something else that has gone on in China, and it probably started in the 1980s. Um, and China has the Chinese government has kind of played a very clever long-term game or strategy of banning a form of nationalism among the Chinese public that means that any external human rights criticism in uh, of China, um, the, bulk of the, the majority of Chinese citizens will reject it and claim that it's aimed at harming China or holding back China um, instead of really considering it, their own government's behavior, their own government's treatment of them, um, and so this kind of nationalism makes it very hard to appeal to or work with Chinese citizens sort of as an ally to um, hold their own government accountable. And with regard to um, this manifests in some uh, troubling ways. So, for example, um as you probably have followed, uh, because of the reports of forced labor in the Uyghur region, there's been a lot of concern about cotton emerging from the Uyghur region. And Japanese uh, retailer Muji tapped into this, um, into this nationalism, when instead of saying that it, it or deciding that it won't source cotton from shit, the region, which is called with Chinese referred to as Xinjiang, they actually advertised on its Chinese website that some of the goods use cotton from Xinjiang. And so I think that that shows a real negative uh, aspect of how nationalism can play out in Chinese society. Right. And speaking of, of forced labor, um, certainly the the Uyghur issue has become one of the most um, elevated topic um, in 
in the bilateral relation between the US and China. The US has characterized the situation as genocide. Uh, Congress enacted uh, uh, a Uyghur Act um, that uh, basically puts uh, the onus on companies sourcing anything from Xinjiang to demonstrate it's not linked to forced labor, which is a quite high bar, although it's unclear how this will be effectively enforced. Um, yet, um, it doesn't seem that China um, uh, is responsive to that kind of, of pressure. Although, China just announced that it would ratify two ILO additional protocols on forced labor. How do you see this development? Yeah, you're so right to link um, this question of what's going on uh, in the Uyghur region and um, China's announcement about signing these um, forced labor conventions. So I think that uh, China's signature to, or announcement, because China hasn't actually signed it yet, definitely is uh, res in response to um, the reports of forced labor. And, you know, there there's a coalition to end forced labor that is made up of civil society groups. And they have done a lot to draw attention to the plight of Uyghurs in China. And because of some of what they've been doing, I do think that China is facing more pressure. Um, so, for example, because of the efforts to draw attention to forced labor as well, a Chinese manufacturer that was placed on the list of companies that were banned from exporting to the U.S., um, by some reports, they've lost uh, 30%. They've had to reduce staff by 30%. They've had to close two factories. They um, kind of had to cancel a loan. Um, so they are definitely feeling pressure and so much pressure that they as well has sued in U.S. court um, to be removed from the U.S. export ban list. And so I think this pressure um, and attention being drawn to forced labor is having an economic consequence in China. And so I think that the Chinese government's announcement about signing these two conventions is uh, an effort to deflect some of this attention. But I will also say, um, especially because you and I have been working on China long enough that I'm sure you are aware that in the late 1990s, China said that it would ratify the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And it still hasn't. And it's been over 20 years. Um, so I wouldn't put too much uh, emphasis on China's announcement. I think we really need to watch what China actually does with regard to those two conventions. Certainly. And I think it's beyond debate that China is now a major world power um, with um, an extraordinarily high level of influence. Your book really has some very interesting insights about what you found and the workings of China's diplomacy in the human rights realm um, tells us uh, about the larger issue of how China, um, what is China's position towards the existing global order um, and also about China's uh, role in international uh, legal regimes in, in general. Can you tell us what you think um, that the examination, the detailed examination of, of China's behavior in the human rights realm um, tells us about its larger relationship to the, to the global order? Yeah, um, I, I'm happy to do that, but I will, again, make a caveat that I have touched on earlier, which is that during the period I examined, 
we had a different China. China was uh, a little more cooperative. They, they definitely pushed back and tried to protect themselves, but they were, throughout the book, were largely described as being defensive. So not going on the offense to create a world order or a regime that they necessarily wanted to see made, but rather just trying to protect themselves from uh, human rights criticism. And I think that, so I would say that for much of the book, um, China did not push back strongly um, against global order. But I think things are very different starting um, definitely under Xi Jinping and probably in the last, from about 2017 in the human rights regime where you see a much more muscular pushback on China, from China. And I think that a lot of this, this shift to a more aggressive Chinese posture is largely because of China's own calculations about its power, its economic and political international power. And I think that China, the Chinese government made a calculation that they could start shifting to a more aggressive role because they perceived that they had sufficient power to do so. I So I will say that I think that there should be a sequel to my book um, in that I think I tell part of the story and it's it's an important part of the story to tell partly because it's a reminder that China was not always like this, like the way we see now under Xi Jinping. Right. And one thing that I found particularly disturbing is how closely China has aligned itself with Russia's position, not because its geopolitical interests are so incomprehensible. You can see why China would not want to abandon uh, Russia, which is one of its very, very few allies and on the world stage. But the way, the callousness with which it seems to be looking at issues of civilian casualties and the way that the war uh, is conducted, and that is something that is not unique. We saw it also in Syria, um, where China voted uh, a, a few times at the UN Security Council to block resolutions uh, on, the, on the situation there. So it's definitely something that is um, uh, of, of high concern. Yes, and um, I think that the voting on um, other countries in the Security Council, countries like Syria, um, South Sudan, and and countries facing censure sanctions, you know, even when there are gross uh, violations and numerous credible reports, China will often um, try to block censure. The ability of the international uh, community to enact sanctions or use very um, vigorous monitoring efforts to try to keep civilians safe, and that that is a very troubling uh, development, especially in from a country that you know part of China's rhetoric is that it's a peace-loving country. And so there's a lot of dissonance um, between its rhetoric and its actual practices. I want to turn to one, what I found to be really an extremely important takeaway from your book. Um, In the conclusion, you look at um, why human rights diplomacy is different from other areas of diplomacy. Why is the human rights regime not as efficient as, say, the trade regime or um, other areas of the international regime? And you have a very interesting and, I thought, convincing um, insight about this, uh, which is that the human rights regime is a regime where there is a lack of reciprocal gains and losses for the um, for the states. That is, if I violate trade um, regulations, then 
probably it's at the expense of another country. But if I violate my human rights obligation under international law, that doesn't necessarily um, harm the interest of other countries. Um, tell us a little bit about this this conclusion that you have, because I think it's it's relevant beyond the realm of human rights. Right. Um, thanks. So a lot of scholars who work on international regimes see the power of international regimes to restrain state behavior. And I think that my point there is that not all regimes are equal, are, are equally powerful. And, you know, I think because of what um, the point you make about reciprocal um, behavior that, it you know, China's human rights uh, abuses are troubling to other countries, but not necessarily harming the interests of other countries. And so one of my concerns is that because of that, other countries are less aggressive in policing China's human rights behavior. If you uh, read some of the background chapters of my book, you'll see how um, over time, in fact, a number of countries became more muted in their um, condemnation of China. Um, I think this also touches on something else related to China's human rights uh, behavior and diplomacy, which is that for the Chinese government, they have been extremely effective at some of this uh, diplomacy, whether it's bilateral human rights talks uh, that it engaged with um, with other countries, what it does in the UN, how actively it courts uh, developing world support for its human rights positions and protection. For China, this is a matter of survival, survival of the regime, uh, and it definitely sees its interests as tied to, to human rights. Whereas I think some of the countries that have traditionally been those that are most active on human rights in China, so North American countries, Western European countries, for a lot of them, they have usually seen human rights um, as a luxury to work on, as something that is mainly just about values. Um, and so they ha- those, those diplomats haven't been quite as motivated as Chinese diplomats have been. But I will also say that I think that a long or truly long-term view of China um, would have would have meant that we should have been incorporating human rights much more um, effectively into our broader foreign policies. Because I think if you polled the North American and Western countries that have worked on human rights in China, you'll you would get them to say, under Xi Jinping, not only is China more repressive, but China is a more difficult partner in every area um, of the world for us. And I think that there is a reason why we're seeing both a more assertive Chinese foreign policy and greater domestic repression. I think the two go hand in hand. That's a great point. And I think for those of us who worked in human rights for um, a very long time, unfortunately, we tend to see that bad human rights practices lead to bad outcomes um, down the line. Um, and whether it's Russia and the invasion of Ukraine or um, Sri Lanka or Myanmar, um, there generally is not cost-free uh, to have a particularly repressive uh, human rights practices. Um, Rana, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, I would like to know uh, if you are working on a new project, uh, what is keeping you uh, busy these days after this uh, group? Thank you for asking. Um, There are three things on my desk right now. I am editing a book on the human rights, democracy, and rule of law projects that were funded and implemented in China since the 1990s. Um, I've convened a 
great group of authors and we um, have workshopped that book and are looking at the impact and legacy of those projects. Um, I've also started working on focusing on the persecution of ethnic Uyghurs in China, especially looking at the response of NGOs and uh, Uyghur self-advocates in trying to raise awareness. And I've also started research on a book that examines human rights in the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. So looking at you know, missed opportunities from the on, on the U.S. side, how Chinese uh, government officials pushed back on different efforts um, that the U.S. government um, sought to implement. And I start that research right after 1989, and I'll be tracing it through uh, the present. So um, many decades of work to, um, to be uncovering in that book. Well, all very important uh, topics, so uh, we wish you good luck with them. Um, thank you again for uh, being on the program, Brenna. This was uh, really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was delightful to speak with you. This was an interview on the Human Rights Channel of the New Books Network, hosted by me, Nicholas Becklin. And today's author was Rana Sjöwin-Borden, author of China and the International Human Rights Regime, 1982-2017, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.